Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack all the numbers behind every single headline. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I'm joined today by TC, early stage reporter, General Bon Favant, and San Francisco living person, Natasha Moscarenas. Natasha, hello and how is life? Life is good. I'm going to Seattle for the first time ever in my whole life today, so I'm amped about that. By the way, Natasha, do you know why coffee culture in America was really kind of started in Seattle? I don't. I just know Starbucks is not considered coffee culture. <laughs> oh, I don't have time for that. But the reason why coffee culture has a hub in Seattle in America is because the weather in Seattle was so freaking bad, they needed an addictive stimulant to get through the day. Wow. And that's no longer the case because now it's warm in the packed Northwest after I left. I found my people. That's amazing. <laughs> we have an enormous show for you today, guys. Danny is still on vacation. He'll be back with us next week. We miss him, but he has been doing more work than he should. So the break is well deserved. Robinhood is public. We're going to talk all about that. We have earnings reports from Alphabet, Microsoft, and Shopify. Big cloud members to go through. We also have an EV update from Tesla, Redwood Materials, and Lordstown Motors, yet again. Funding rounds from Class, 1Password, Contentful, and Squire Technologies. And then we're going to riff just for a minute on Uva and Pepe and what they're doing in the health tech space. And then we're going to wrap with a tiny note on some really neat early stage music startups that are just going into an accelerator because we love not just early stage tech, Natasha. We love early, 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 super early, barely as a product tech. Pre-funding. It's the stuff. Yeah, they tell us everything when they're that young. And I like to keep them in my heart and, and say goodbye the moment they raise the Series A. Yeah, and then all of a sudden they're like, well, we can't comment on that because we don't want to. Anywho, <laughs> let's talk about Robinhood. This IPO has been coming for so long, it almost feels surreal to have it arrive. But last night, Robinhood priced at $38 per share. Natasha, it was the lower end of its range of 38 to 42. Curious just what your first kind of reaction was to to that figure. Yeah, I mean, so the Robinhood IPO, I know for you, it's been something you've been waiting for for so long. And same here, even as someone who's not fully in the public markets world, because it's so exciting, seeing them price at the lower end of their range, it was kind of ironic to me because I think everyone obviously has been loving this concept of Robinhood is going to price. You can buy stock on its app and it's its own universe. And so I was like, am I going to wake up to like this crazy headline of like Robinhood exceeding its pop, selling it, you know, everything crashes because everyone's buying everything. It felt like a more modest start to the day. Yes. But what were your impressions given the numbers behind the company, actually, and not just the hype? <laughs> so, I mean, frankly, if this company had priced at 50, I would have said, OK, if it had priced at 38 as it did, I would have said, OK, if it I mean, it, it's just a wild card offering. There's there's a lot going on and we're going to we're going to write about this on the site. So, like, you know, here's a, a, a forecast. But like Robinhood is a company with exceptional recent performance. It's just had a really amazing 2020 and start to 2021. The question is, how long can that boom continue? And how much does seasonality impact trading? What exposure does it really have to legal risk? And uh, how long can it hold on to its market as other fintechs move into its space? And so it's a pioneer, which makes it a bit of a wild card because it's not like there's three to five companies that mm -hmm. have done this before that we can look back on. It, it, it's kind of strange. And then Natasha, there's the thing they did, which was to allocate a chunk of their IPO shares to their own users. And here's the thing. Do you think that by selling a bunch of their stock to Robinhood users at the IPO price, they undercut kind of retail demand and therefore limited kind of a first day pop, perhaps? I think they saved themselves from the pop conversation, which maybe was a bit of a choice on their end. <laughs> but I think the real impact of them selling one third of their shares directly to their users is adding a layer of defensibility among its competitors. 
Mm. No other really competitor, correct me if I'm wrong, but no other competitor can say that they now have users that are even more invested in their company because they are literally invested in their company in this way. Yeah. It's like this, I guess, combining of worlds that I think now Robinhood probably has incentives for people to stay on trading on their apps because they're one of those stocks on there. Yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be very fun to see how Robinhood actually trades on on Robinhood. And, you know, you joked earlier about them kind of crashing or whatever. I, so I haven't seen any reports yet of uh, of server instability. You, I, I guarantee this is an all hands on deck kind of yeah, day for their so tech true. team. <laughs> it's like, like today, if, if not today, then when? <laughs> I, I, the only company that I've ever known who could fail at staying up and succeed was Twitter. And I don't think that's <laughs> like, a, a, like, like a reason to think others can do it. And so it's good that we haven't seen issues. For everyone out there, if you haven't gone through the numbers yet, the valuation was 32 to 33 billion, depending kind of how you counted shares. And we are recording this as the company is, is coming to trade. So we don't have the final number, but I will say that a, it was indicated to open at 42 and that has come down consistently since. And now we're seeing numbers closer to 38. So this could be, by the time you hear this, a slightly different story if it opens below its IPO price, but uh, you know they raised a bunch of money. So I, don't, I haven't seen the usual tweets and headlines around like this is bad news for Robinhood or Robinhood stumbles ahead of trading. But I did want to take a second talk about your conversation with Robinhood CFO yesterday, and if you got any meat or or tea. Yes, I did talk to Robinhood CFO. The thing that I really wanted to know is why was it the right time to go public? You know why why was this the moment? And he said, "This is a CFO, Jason Warnick." He said you know, they were just ready. They built up their leadership team. They had a better processes internally, which is super critical to kind of having an IPO ready company. And uh, then he went on a lot about, you know, values and how they've worked on safety. But like, really, it just seemed like the company had kind of like reached to the point when it was time to go. I would throw in, you know, a welcoming IPO market, a focus on growth, yeah. historically high tech valuations. But readiness was what he said. And that seemed to be the most substantial of his points. Okay. And then the other question was, how long was this in the works? You know, how long have you been working on going public? And, you know, Jason comes from, I think it's Amazon back in the day. So, you know, a lot of experience at, at bigger companies. And he joined Robinhood back in December of 2018. And essentially, he, you know, started working on this then. Like, it's a long process to get ready to go public. And so I think that Robinhood has had more disciplined internal financial controls than some companies of a similar age at that time. And so it probably wasn't an enormous lift to get ready to go public. And so here we are. And by the time, you know, folks hear this, they will be a liquid stock. So uh, you may place bets as you will on Robinhood joining the legions of VCs who have done the same thing in recent times. And then Natasha, last thing on this, I think, is that eToro is going public via a SPAC. So yes. we have another millennial Gen Z friendly brokerage house, if you will, going public in the next couple of months. So keep an eye on that. But Natasha, you cover early stage ed tech. So what we should do is talk about mega cap technology, big tech cloud <laughs> earnings, I think. Yeah, I was going to say the opposite of Gen Z millennial loved content is earnings reports. <laughs> but all jokes aside, Alex, you wrote some really good stuff around some of the big companies and how they're reacting. And I have questions for you, but I wanted to throw the mic to start off with Alphabet. Yes. So Alphabet, of course, is the holding company around which Google was kind of enmeshed, if you will. And really what Alphabet is, is Google plus some stuff. So when we talk about Alphabet, we're really just talking about Google. Anywho, in the second quarter, Alphabet posted revenues of $61.9 That's top line growth of 62%. Now, woo, that's a crazy number. How did that happen? Well, don't forget that last year in Q2, Alphabet didn't have a great quarter because the advertising market in the world went to crap. And this hit everybody. In the ad space, Google, of course, a major player in the global advertising market. 
Anywho, top line growth 62%, net income grew by 166%, but forget all of that. Two divisions at Google matter to me the most. One is YouTube. Yes. Revenue rose 84% to $7 billion at YouTube in Q2. Natasha, that number just blew me away. Yeah. I mean, there was the number after it too that was interesting to me. So YouTube Shorts, which is a TikTok-esque product, has surpassed 15 billion global daily views, up 131% from the 6.5 billion number that it had in March. And so there is so much demand. And I think people kind of joke about everyone trying to take over TikTok and you can it's so easy to do, but people are watching it. So I'm not, you know, I'm not judging them for trying. Here's the question, though. You know, 15 billion global daily views sounds like a lot to me because, you know, there's only seven, seven and a half billion people alive. That's close enough. (laughs) (laughs) This is why we have a notes doc. So I don't just invent stats on the show. But there we go. There's what I just made up. How many TikToks are watched today? Because I, I don't know if 15 billion is is 20% of globally watched TikToks, you know? So to me, it's it's a big, shiny number, but without context, I don't want to lean on it, you know, too much. That's real. I'm definitely like 1% of that. So we don't Wait, know. Wait, do you actually worth. watch YouTube shorts? <laughs> no, 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 no. I watch like 1 million TikToks every day. Oh, okay, good. That's, I was about to say, oh, you've used this product. <laughs> and then the other key number from the Alphabet report, Natasha, was Google Cloud. This, of course, is their, you know, broader cloud efforts, kind of competes with Azure and Amazon's AWS. And revenue was $4.6 billion, up 54% year over year which is strong, I think. But critically, operating loss at Google Cloud fell from $1.4 billion to $561 million. So strong top line growth and falling losses is what you want to see from kind of a, a key business to Google's future, Alphabet's future. And so I was impressed by that. Other bets, their kind of collection of Skunkworks projects torched uh, $1.4 billion in the quarter, which is um, kind of on par for those projects. And that's my my alphabet thing, Tosh, is, is that a sufficient summary for you? Sufficient summary. How numb are we to Google's non-core offerings losing a ton of money? Oh, in, entirely accustomed to it. Essentially, Alphabet is incredibly wealthy in terms of cash, cash flow, earnings per share. And so if they want to keep making long-term bets that are expensive, uh, good. I mean, I'm going to giggle gently at the fact that revenue was 192 and operating losses were 1400 million. But, you know, I spend some of my money on dumb things and, you know, I don't expect people to crap on me for that. So, uh, you know, eh, eh, that's what I got. (laughs) I'll take it. I'll take it. Next up is Microsoft. Their earnings showed um, revenues of forty six point two billion and that their revenues overall grew by twenty one percent. How are you feeling about it as you were reading through? The issue with a company like Microsoft is that it's so broad. You have to kind of dig into individual sectors because like. Windows didn't have a great quarter, but many other things did at Microsoft. So how did Microsoft do? Well, it's a bit like asking how a country did. Like like GDP is one number, but you also want to dig into employment figures on a per industry basis. So let's do that by analogy and really talk about Azure. Mm-hmm. This again, it competes with Google Cloud, it competes with AWS. It grew 51% in the quarter, and that's the best quarterly growth number since Q320. So for some time, it's, it's, it's a solid figure. And Azure's bigger than Google Cloud. So okay. it growing at 51% means that it grew almost as quickly as its smaller rival, which means that Google's going to have a long road to catch up to Azure as Azure chases AWS. I may be being earnest here, but seeing this number, I just never can get over how much Microsoft can still grow. I feel like it continues to be something that surprises me. And seeing that 51% number for a company like Microsoft was 
just, I don't know, insane. Well, revenue growth of 21% is, is like this, this sum of everything, right? So it's, it's Windows having a bad quarter. It's the chip shortage impacting surface revenues. It's strong cloud growth. It's LinkedIn growing by 46%. Mm. It's Dynamics 365 growing by 49%. And it all gists down to 21%. But when you're doing 46 billion in revenue a quarter, yeah. that's revenues of, I'm doing math, uh, 90 days, 45, like, you know, $500 million a day in sales. It's such a such a, an enormous thing. Like people are now comparing big tech companies to like countries. Yeah. And wow. Th- that's not great. It's not really a good analogy, blah, blah, blah. But it's also not stupid because it helps put them in scale. Like if I say 46.2 billion or I say 61.9 billion, as a human, they feel super similar. Exactly. Right? They're just big scale numbers. Scale is hard to internalize. And then I, I want to throw in one tiny note and then we're going to talk about Shopify and move on. But like, I'm seeing, I'm reading tweets, which I shouldn't do, but I, I can't help myself. You and TikTok is me and tweets. <laughs> a little bit of, uh, of complaints amongst the venture and startup classes about AWS pricing. And I'm curious to see if there is going to be almost like a return to price wars. Because if you go back to like early AWS days, Amazon would like just cut prices on a regular basis. They'd be like, oh, it's cheaper now. We're going to offer it for cheaper. And they got so many companies hooked on, on their web services. I, I'm curious to see if this pricing complaints that I'm seeing is just where we are in the market or if it's maybe signs of things to come. Because it, it's, it, it's such a key plank of uh, kind of the future of big tech revenues and also the underpinnings of every startup that you love. Yeah, so. I was going to say, I do feel like it could. It's not crazy to me that that could be the next step in where we see startups feeling more empowered and ownership and just wanting cheaper services. It's kind of like the race to the bottom. Probably not going to happen. But yeah, some kind of re-leveling as so many businesses are getting started and want more things. And want more things for cheaper, I would would throw in there. And then there's Shopify and Natasha, the Canadian e-commerce giant, everyone's favorite growth stock before meme stocks were a thing. (laughs) Revenues in Q2, 1.12 billion, up 57%. Earnings per share, two bucks, 24. And then there's just a a bunch of of big numbers we could throw out there. Like their subscription products grew 70%. Their merchant services revenues up 52%. And they had a ridiculous gap in that income number, but that was due to some other stuff. So really, they had about a quarter billion in profit, which was double the year ago period. I, the, the gist is Shopify, once again, beat expectations, made lots of money and did very well. Yeehaw, Shopify. <laughs> I was going to say boring, but that would make us sound like not optimist. So maybe we shouldn't. <laughs> I mean, we, I mean, like the summary point of all of this, the reason why we went through all these numbers is just this. Not a lot of upward share movement by Shopify and Microsoft and Alphabet after they crushed earnings. And so really the takeaway is that this was priced in. And that tells us a lot about where the markets are. The markets are expensive right now because people are expecting outsized performance from tech companies. And this is exactly the same in the startup market, the private market, as it is in the public market. And so, you know, when you can see Shopify post, you know, 1.12 billion above the expected 1.05 billion in revenue to more than double expected EPS and to kind of stay flat, that tells you how much investors are really expecting just shocking amounts of growth. One thing before we move on is how COVID may change our next earnings season. We have seen some of the big tech companies be a little bit more conservative in their reopening plans. Twitter announced that it is closing its SF and New York offices just two weeks after reopening. Google is requiring all employees to be vaccinated before coming. And Facebook has something similar. Amazon also is is requiring. And so I don't think that that's necessarily them saying that COVID is back and there's going to be some sort of tightening. But I, I do think that's something that I'm starting to take seriously again, and specifically on how it can impact financial and performance. 
Yeah, I mean, like these these office closings and openings are kind of like bellwethers for where the economy could be going. Exactly. Are we going back into our houses? I barely left mine, but now I'm back in it. I'm probably just going to be less social for a bit because don't. I don't know. I just I, I don't want to get COVID still. Yeah. Same. Big on it. A lot of questions there. But let's talk about EVs really quick. There's three EV stories that kind of caught our eye this week. We're calling it two truths and a lie. It's, <laughs> it's, it's two neat stories and then one kind of like sad trombone. Natasha, the first one up is that Tesla is making moves in the battery space. They are going to make a bet on iron-based batteries, and they're also trying to secure nickel for uh, a different type of battery tech uh, directly from the source. And so my read here is that we're watching the world figure out what types of batteries we can build with the resources we have access to. Yeah. So Aria from the transportation team at TC wrote a really, I think, illustrative graph on why LFP battery cells, which is what Elon is saying Tesla is heading towards, on on why those batteries are attractive. So one, they're not dependent on scarce and volatile materials like cobalt and nickel, which has gone, you know, under scrutiny recently due to its mining conditions. And then they're also less energy dense. So these batteries are cheaper. And we all know how much EV adoption requires massive, truly massive amounts of capital. And so I see this kind of battery change being like a signal of lowering the cost per vehicle plot twist and potentially helping some adoption down the road, too. Yeah. And like my question is, like, which cars might this impact and what battery tech is going to get disrupted by switch to more iron focused batteries over nickel? And I think it's going to be like commercial vehicles because commercial vehicles are boxy and there's lots of room. And when there's room, you can put in less dense batteries. And also, you know, Tesla sells power walls and power packs and gigawatt tera hours things. And so <laughs> all of that crap that just sits on the ground, it, it can be a little bit bigger and a little bit heavier because you're not moving it. And so maybe iron-based battery tech is going to be the answer to that. But Tesla going to source materials directly, sign of the times. I mean, it's a competitive market for battery tech. Mercedes is building like eight battery plants. And so like, you know, th- th- there's going to be a, a global scrap for this yeah. sort of stuff. It's a good time to be a battery tech startup if you're in the recycling and sustainability space. So we saw that Redwood Materials raised $700 million at a $3 billion pre-money valuation this past week. They're a Nevada-based battery recycling startup. So they're trying to make it more sustainable and bring in the world's battery cell producers to make sure that that same kind of energy can be used for, like you said, kind of consumer electronics and the coming wave of EVs. And of course, it was founded by a Tesla alum. So I could totally see synergies there, if not already in the works. It's almost like the world's very small. The reason why this is neat is they're building a, a closed loop system, Natasha. So essentially, like they will take in batteries and then they will like extract the, the expensive and rare bits and then put those back into production lines. And so, you know, this could greatly extend the life of, of rare earth materials that we need for these products. And also, frankly, help the environment. And I I really think that that little caveat of like making the world less crappy for future generations is going to be an increasingly key business theme because it's coming up everywhere. Like, I mean, I grew up and I remember when Priuses came out and everyone who had a truck was like, Priuses are for losers. (laughs) And now everyone's like, we're moving to completely electric cars. And so it's just fascinating to watch the world change. Revenue materials, though, a $700 million round did catch our eye. Now, those are the two positive stories. Battery tech from Tesla, Redwood Materials doing some cool battery tech. And then, Natasha, there's our third story, which is what I was calling the sad trombone entry. Who are we talking about? Lordstown Motors, the name oh, yes. we can't get out of our mouth. They are the lie section. Um, obviously, if pe- for people who are catching up, we are alluding to how Lordstown Motors 
which is one of these companies basically warned five weeks ago that it doesn't have enough funds to bring EV pickup trucks to market after doing the exact opposite, aka promising it could do that earlier. And so we've been starting to see this company fall apart. And Alex, you have been covering them for a few weeks. What is the news this week and how does it fit into the broader context? Yeah. So essentially, as Natasha just said, when they were going public via their SPAC, they said this deal will raise enough capital to get us to production and then some. And then it, it turned out that well, it wasn't true. So they need more money. This is one of those moments in finance when it's not simple. And so I'm going to have to just talk for a second. And if it's boring, just blink twice, Natasha, and I'll cut <laughs> no, it short. Do your thing. <laughs> okay. So Lordstown Motors has come to a $400 million stock sale agreement with Yorkville Advisors. And the way this is set up, and I was reading Matt Levine over at Bloomberg and trying to kind of figure out the mechanics here. Essentially, Lordstown can go to Yorkville Advisors and say, we would like X dollars. And then Yorkville can sell shares at a determined price set by a three-day trading range at a slight discount, and then it gets paid the differential for its work. I think that's close. What's interesting is that essentially, Lordstown will go to them and say, we would like, let's just say $100 million. Mm -hmm. And then the Yorkville team will sell that equity before it has it. So it's kind of like a short sale to generate revenue for the company. So they're almost gonna like engender a short sale of their own stock to raise capital. But theoretically, it could be worth 400 million over the next couple of years, which may be enough money to help them get to production. It's not the type of capital you want to raise. And I don't think investors are going to be really, really hype. But, you know, here we are. So it's an interesting moment in time. L let's see if Lordstown gets a car out. We saw that Rivian <laughs> raised another two and a half billion, gosh, last week, I think. So mm -hmm. there's still a lot of money in this space and a lot of optimism. I don't know if Lordstown's going to be it or if it's going to be Lucid or one of the 18 other yeah. Chinese EV companies. But this story is ongoing and a bit like Luckin. Yeah, Ohio, do better. I usually love to root for Ohio-based companies. I'm mad. I usually <laughs> like to root for Ohio-based companies. That's a very specific sentence. My boyfriend's um, from Ohio. <laughs> oh, okay. That, that's like if one of our friends was like, I'm really into startups from Kent in, in the <laughs> Yeah, UK. okay, fair, 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 fair. <laughs> Tough but fair. Why? Anywho, let's talk about some startup rounds. And you, Natasha, have an EdTech round that really kind of confused me. So class has raised a bajillion dollars. What's going on? Yes, Class has raised a bajillion dollars. So Class, it launched 10 months ago from the founder of Blackboard, which a lot of people probably know or used. Uh, Michael Chasen is the founder there. Class is one of the companies that wants to be a Zoom-only integration for schools and institutions, basically trying to make the Zoom experience where it's like four blocks or whatever, very conference room-esque look and feel more like it's meant for school, which means, you know, having the teacher up on a podium, integrating testing, yeah. just a lot of fancy bits that will make virtual schooling more interesting. It obviously launched during a time where a lot of schools in the U.S. especially were doing remote schooling. Since then, it's really been on a fundraising tear. So the news this week was that they raised $105 million in a round led by SoftBank Vision Fund 2. And whenever I see their name, I do think immediately they're trying to go global. And that's what, exactly what they're trying to do. The most crazy bit of this whole thing, though, was that they're now at a post-money valuation of $804 million, literally less than a year of launching to the public. It's a lot. It's a lot. And I am so bullish on EdTech. And I think that the team is fascinating. But it's one of those headlines and stories you write where you're just like, damn, is that where we're at right now? The answer is always yes to that question. I know. Always yes. So the thing that I wanted to bring up was the growth rate. So I read sure. your story. I read, I think, almost everything you write, but I was prepping, so I definitely read this one. <laughs> you said that revenue growth at the company was 4x quarter over quarter in 2021. So you mean that like from Q1 to Q2, the company grew by a factor of four? Yeah. Okay. So that explains this entire round to me. All right. 
That said, we don't have specifics. We do know that they have 250 customers and that they are going to be earmarking a lot of it towards internationalization. I don't think that they're profitable yet because of this kind of aggressive spending. But yeah, that's kind of where they are in terms of revenue right now. So why would someone put $105 million into a company that's this young? Why, 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 why? Well, think about it this way. If it's growing 4x quarter over quarter, you know, and let's say that decelerates to just doubling quarter over quarter, the company's going to be worth a lot more in like 24 minutes. So you want to get as much capital into it now as you can to get the biggest ownership stake as possible. And sure, you know, if you're class, you can now have essentially years of runway to expand into other markets and you have tons of flexibility in terms of operations. But if you're the Vision Fund 2, the Diet Coke, smaller, more self-generated Vision Fund, if you will, (laughs) this is kind of how you want to make bets. And so the growth rate is indicative of a small revenue base and, and an aggressive ramp. And let's see how that that kind of works out, I think. Well said. I, I do think the the last thing about class raising this much, you know, since the beginning, I've been asking Michael, are you guys just seeing yourself up for a Zoom acquisition? And it's a little harsh, but I also, they going out the gate and saying, we are going to only integrate with Zoom seemed unnecessarily connecting yourself to a platform for no reason. And so I was asking them, I think them raising this much money basically squashes any rumors or questioning about if they want to be a standalone company or if they want to just be a Zoom acquisition. So I definitely think it's a former. Yeah, you don't raise a hundred, you don't raise nine figures of capital and talk about how you're going to spend most of it on internationalization if you're trying to get bought by someone, unless you're really bad at negotiating. Because what what that says to me is, we're going for an IPO, we're expensive, we're ambitious. And if you wanted to buy us, it's going to be hella costly. So, I mean, Zoom's rich, but like, you know, in this case, why not just let someone else build on their platform? So Totally. Let's move to the opposite side of the spectrum, which is a startup that has taken a really long time to raise, then just did it again. Alex, walk us through one password. Look, we all use passwords. And up until sometime recently, I did bad password things. (laughs) And then I decided to grow up and I got a password manager. So my spouse and I, we happen to be one password customers. Verizon Media Group is a LastPass customer. But what these services allow you to do is to have a central place where you store insanely complex passwords. I don't even know any of my passwords anymore because they're all in one password and they're all like 84 characters long. Don't hack me. You can't get in. (laughs) And they're super complex. And so it's a great service. I I think this technology is going to become de facto in time. And the story today is that 1Password has raised another chunk of money from Excel, this time a $100 million round at a $2 billion valuation with participation from 88 bajillion people, including, of course, Ashton Kutcher, because why not? Toronto-based company, 1Password famously didn't raise capital for a very long time. It raised a chunk of money from Excel a little bit ago. Excel, the venture capital firm, has a history of going into kind of like self-funded companies once they reach scale and buying a big chunk. Did this with Qualtrics, doing this again with 1Password. And they're at 120 million ARR, if I recall correctly, and doing fine. So here is a company that can go public whenever it wants, given that it just raised probably not super, super, super soon. But it'll happen eventually, and I, I, I just I can't get over how much I like the product. So I, I get this one, and I'm curious, Natasha, uh, do you have a password manager? I actually don't, but I am in the process of doing it because my roommate is very strongly pro them. Good. We're a LastPass household. Oh, you're a LastPass household, I see. <laughs> we should start adding it to our Twitter bios, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> well, the Billion Dollar Club is like half of our show this week, I'm now realizing. So you wrote about Contentful. Yes. They're a headless CMS 
management tool. Are they WordPress? They help companies put words and images they want to say onto the internet as fast and seamlessly as possible, if I'm paraphrasing from your story. Right. I mean, so Contentful, you may know of it as a headless CMS, CMS being content management system. Think WordPress, chop off the UI component of that, and you have a headless CMS. You can kind of bring your own user interface. Yeah, so you know, WordPress has a, a UI. Oh, oh, it does. We're viscerally aware of all of WordPress's <laughs> quirks and virtues. Anyways, the point is that they're thinking a little bit more broadly now. They're uh, a company that offers APIs to their customers to allow them to essentially say, hey, Contentful, here's a bunch of images and text. We're going to call these to our applications around the world. And will you please handle making sure that they're readily available super, super quickly wherever we need them to be? And, you know, the Internet's a big, wild place. It's a series of tubes, if you will, mm -hmm. around the world. And, you know, Contentful has found enormous traction by providing the service. And, and I talked to the CEO, Steve Sloan, perfectly amiable person. Actually, kind of, I, frankly, I hate to say it, but I, I, I liked him. And he was like, look, you know, Stripe abstracts payments away from developers who don't then have to go invent a payment stack. Okay. And he has a Twilio background. It's like Twilio abstracted the telecom world. And what they're trying to do is abstract the world of delivering content into applications around around the globe and, you know, raising a $175 million round led by Tiger at a new $3 billion valuation. A lot's going on here. But they wouldn't tell me. They wouldn't tell me about their growth. And I, I oh. made a small a small tantrum in my post that you actually helped me edit, Natasha. Thank you. But it, it's a big enough round in a space that I care about. And it's Tiger. So I still wrote about it. But yeah. like, you know, something, please give me give me something. What was his argument? Because I think with early stage startups, I have a little bit. It, it depends on the day. But sometimes with early stage startups, if their revenue or number of customers is like their only competitive advantage against like Stripe, then I, I get it. Whatever. Keep your 30 customers. And I love you for having them. But with a company this size, like what was his argument to not share revenue? So well, I, I pressed him on this because I was like, OK, let's talk growth. And he was like, we're not going to. And I was like, ah, awkward phone call moment. And so I was like, why? Why won't you share? And he was like, look, if we were to share some numbers. Later on, when we go public, people are going to look back in the S1 at the prior numbers and try to like figure things out. And his point was like, you know, uh, startups don't usually report on kind of a gap basis. And so there might mm -hmm. be a discrepancy between shared figures and what we see. And just to be clear, we just talked about WeWork endlessly and WeWork was famously full of shit when it came to numbers they talked about versus then kind of what came out in the S1. The solution to this, in my view, is that startups, once they reach unicorn scale, should have at least a gap ready number to share, like have something like, you know, you're a billion dollar company. Have now. something. I think benchmarks yeah. are so key. If you're able to raise millions and millions and hundreds of millions of dollars, I think you can also explain why you did it beyond saying that you're growing. It's also implied like you don't see your valuation go up by I think this was like a, a four or five X jump from their last round. And an enormous check from Tiger. We all know they're doing well. It's implied by the numbers. So it doesn't break the, the internet the to, to tell me. Yeah, yeah. You're literally coming to me and saying, our business is doing so good. We are now worth $3 billion. Or as I like to say, we're worth $3,000 million. <laughs> and, and then I'm like, well, how fast are you going? They're like, we don't want to share. But, 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 but do, or alternatively, d don't share anything. Like, like it, it's like putting on half of your shoes. Like you just, it's just a strange thing to do before you go out. Anyways, they're going to hire a bunch of people and they sell to mid-market enterprise and quickly growing startups. On the whole, it's a cool company, cool CEO, and we will get them to tell us something eventually. Now, Natasha, Squire's back again. Squire again. is back. Yeah. They just raised from Tiger and had raised a 60 million Series D. They tripled their valuation to 
750 million. And unlike Klaus, this company has really been a business in the works. It was founded in 2016, but the pandemic really was where Squire, which helps barbershops bring on technology and digitized operations. Yeah. They tripled their valuation, I think, eight months ago, and then they just did it again. So in literally, I think, one year, a little more than one year, they went from being valued at 85 million to 750 million. Wow. Impressive. Really impressive. Tiger was in the ground. Also iconic Charles River Ventures and Trinity Ventures. And critically, they announced something called Squire Capital. And my first thought was they're building a VC fund. And it turns out that's not the case. It's actually fintech. Yeah. I mean, I have a feeling that that branding won't hurt them if they ever do choose to get into <laughs> actually giving money out to other companies. And so I think it's it's good branding right now. But right now, Squire Capital is built through an integration with Bond, which is a fintech infrastructure startup. And it will help the barber shops that are using Squire already offer instant payments and basically just have a more niche, adaptable version of Square for their own platforms. You know, Squire also in their series, I believe C, had announced that they had raised a 15 million debt financing arm to fund barbers and help them access capital easier. When I asked about that this time, though, they said that they want to do that, but they want to find a way for it to scale. So reading in between the lines, I think they tried it. They realized that that might not be something that they can launch immediately to everyone as they grow so fast. And they're now starting with maybe a little bit more of a conservative yet still awesome tool that they'll eventually bring on. So barbers can come to them for money too. And that's key for two reasons. One, it means they have a two-part business model, SaaS revenues and payments. So that's great for their you know long-term just health. And also, if you do handle a, a small business's payment flow, you have a brilliant look into their cash flow. And so if you want to, exactly. I don't know, loan money out eventually to SMBs that are part of your vertical SaaS network, handling payments is a great way to get the data. 175 people now, over 2,000 shops on three continents. It only spent 10% of its last round, so gosh knows what they're going to do with this one and expects to go 300% in 2021. I'll just say, given the valuation increase, they'll have to do that again next year, but certainly a company to watch and one that uh, we've enjoyed covering, I think I should say. It's probably one of my favorite companies to have covered over the past year. Sanj and Dave are great. And obviously with this new valuation, they are heading their way to becoming a black founder-led unicorn, which unfortunately is still rare, but historical in the making. And I think it will be, as Dave mentioned on my phone call with him, he thinks it will be a data point that other VCs can point to and and fund other entrepreneurs. And that's an awesome spot to be. Before we go, we do want to talk about Uva and Pepe. Now, Natasha, Uva put together a $1.2 million round. So we've gone to the early stage and they are doing at-home hormone measuring. If you are working on getting pregnant, tracking hormones is a super, super critical thing to do. And this is a company that's going to help bring those tests more to an at-home environment. The funding round, a seed round, was led by BBG Ventures and also saw company ventures in there. 75 clinics are using their tech today. So pretty impressive. That is the key part, I think. The fact that it is not only direct to consumer, but has actually gotten adoption and willingness from clinics to give out the product. So the at-home kit is one to watch. And it actually meshes kind of perfectly with our next startup, which is Peppy, a B2B health platform for menopause and fertility support. They raised a 10 million Series A led by Felix Capital, and they were founded in London. Both Pepe and Uva underscore what we talked about a little bit in the Hormonal Health Equity Wednesday episode from, I guess, a month or two back. What is time? I don't know. Yeah, time is no meaning. It it was this year, I think. (laughs) Yeah, the two companies are both trying to break into the hormonal health space, which is much more vast than just reproductive health. While reproductive health is like kind of that first way in, tracking hormones can be like the window into so many of health problems that disproportionately affect women, such as menopause, PCOS, 
And so we're seeing a lot of companies actually build up around hormones because that's the hardest part probably of that entire process. And there still is no unicorn in the market. So seeing seed companies raise money means that they're really kind of fighting to prove themselves. They can't just point to a company and say, we're going to be like them. Yeah. I'll just say like, you know, Uva, it's starter kits like 160 bucks and it's like a hundred bucks a month to get more of these tests. People are going to pay it. Honestly, they could probably add a zero to that. I mean, like fertility stuff is very expensive and complicated. It's super annoying to schedule all the doctor's appointments. And like, it's just, it's it's a lot. So anyways, a great market. And then to close, Natasha, did you get a chance to read the ASCAP lab inductee class regarding music tech? I did. So the ASCAP stands for the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers. And they, because everyone is getting into startups these days, are opening up a music studio and, and are incubating four early stage startups for 12 weeks which is so freaking cool. We don't talk about music enough on this podcast. And that's why I'm, I'm kind of shoehorning this one into the very end of the show. And okay. I just want to point out the four companies are Boomy, MeSynth, it's M-I-Synth, The Slashers, and Dot Dot. Natasha, I thought Boomy was the most interesting idea. The idea of like AI generated music really kind of caught my eye. Which was your fave? So my favorite was The Slashers. It's kind of like a virtual HQ for music people. I was like, how fun would that be just to not be one of those and just like eavesdrop and get a free concert in your ears? No, I, I think it's really great. But <laughs> Natasha, you, awesome. you, you missed a really great chance there to drop the word metaverse, which is the, uh, the, new, the new hip thing. Oh my God, don't get me started. I actually almost blocked it. On Twitter? As a word from Twitter, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> All right, listen, uh, we are out of time. Thank you very for tuning in equity is taking a small break next week we will have an awesome monday show digging into the duolingo ipo coming to you on monday and then we're going to be kind of on hiatus for like four days so we are going to sit back recharge go back through our listener survey make some tweaks to the show listen to your notes and then we're going to power through a really busy end of the year so we are going to take a very micro break. And then, Natasha, we're going to come back. I think it's uh, better than ever, I think is the plan. I think indeed we are. Get your hot takes, mostly fan mail and only compliments to us at Pot <laughs> on Twitter. Thanks for everyone for tuning into the Twitter spaces. I see some friends and really appreciate everyone tuning in. 